Welcome to this conversation. My guest today is Dr. Megan Toole. We're going on a little tour today, a little tourism and little learning. Dr. Toole is the programming coordinator at the Jonesboro Washington County History Museum, and that is found inside the Jonesboro Visitor Center. Is that right, Megan? That is. That's correct. It's located off of Boone Street in historic downtown Jonesboro, Tennessee. So here we are on the road, and we have expanded audience for WEHC. Now we go into five counties in Southwest Virginia, and now, well, we did, and now we go into Wise County and have a lot of new locations joining us. And so lots of people can hear about the very interesting exhibit at the Jonesboro Visitor Center that was actually curated and researched by my guest today. Megan Toole. How about that? Pleasure to work on and a real joy to get to do that experience of researching and curating that exhibit. Who do you work for? History Museum or the Visitor Center or is it both? So I work for the Heritage Alliance of Northeast Tennessee and Southwest Virginia. I'm the programming coordinator there and we run several historic sites and museums throughout the area, throughout Washington County, particularly Jonesboro, but elsewhere. And one of those sites is the Jonesboro Washington County History Museum, which is located in the Visitor Center, which is wonderful because we get to interact with folks visiting the area as well as local residents and school groups. So that's one of our Keystone Museums. Well, I was going to ask if you finished your PhD, was this research part of what you did for your doctorate? It was not actually the focus of my doctorate. Um, I finished my PhD in the summer of 2020. So right uh, in the middle of the pandemic, which was an unreal experience. Um, and I received that from North Carolina State University. My focus is actually in histories of crime and punishment. Uh, I'm a 20th century Americanist. But that being said, I have done in my position here at the Heritage Alliance and as a museum practitioner and historian, lots of work with regional history, um, exhibits, tours, programs, publications. And I actually taught and have taught uh, about Southern Appalachian history. So it's a subject uh, matter that I didn't get into as much of my studies, but in my career, I have interacted with quite a bit. Well, I'm just doing a lousy job of introducing you and getting things going because I haven't even said yet that the exhibit we're talking about is called Eight Myths of Appalachia. And I cannot wait to hear what you have to say about what those myths of Appalachia are. Well, let's just start with give us one. What is one of the big myths about Appalachia? Oh, my goodness. There are so many. And, uh, you know, I think... What's fascinating about the misconceptions about Appalachia is, you know, this idea that they're new, right, or that um, they're more recent, but they are historical and they have long roots. And so our goal with identifying some of these myths was to explain their origin stories, how they came to be, and then how they stayed. And so one of the ones that I personally really like to tackle was the myth of illiteracy, you know, there's this perception that uh, folks in Appalachia uh, either can't or are unwilling to read. Uh, they're not really characterized as readers uh, or as traditional learners um, in terms of schooling and education. And I, you know, one of my goals with the research that was provided in the exhibit was to identify the ways that that was absolutely not true. Um, we had great literary traditions and literacy traditions. Um, 
newspapers, community writing, uh, the use of religious materials for literary instruction. We had uh, librarians via horseback that would go and deliver books because books were in such high demand, even in the most rural parts of Appalachia. So that was one of the myths that I really enjoyed debunking in an evidence-based way. Why did people from the outside look into Appalachia and think, oh, those people are illiterate? There was a portrayal that really emerged with, they're called travel writers or color writers of the 1800s. You know, obviously the region was settled much earlier than that. You've got settlement patterns going back into, you know, the 18th century, so the 1700s. But post-Civil War, um, when we see a decline in the economy, we see financial hardship, we see massive societal change throughout the South generally. We see these folks coming through the region, traveling from New England, from across the world, and they would portray Appalachians in two ways, either in this really glowing way as kind of this aloof, independent frontiersman, right? Kind of the ideal of manhood and self-sufficiency, or you would see this portrayal of them as backwards, disconnected from progress and modernity, um, you know, kind of an example of what happens when you don't have exposure to the new right and forward momentum. And so these two images emerge that we see simultaneously, this real appreciation of and admiration of Appalachians, and then also this disparaging kind of backwardsness that characterizes everything about them individually and collectively, right, as people and as a, as a society and as a region. And so the color writers who came and talked about residents and communicated that back via travel writing, newspaper columns, um, you know, novels, et cetera, really developed that that trope. And it got widely accepted a lot of the times because people throughout the region didn't know better. Um, and over time, it became reinforced through popular culture, TV, radio, um, through comedy, through, you know, we even have examples today of literature that reinforces some of that. It starts there, but other uh, factors come in to kind of reinforce it over time. Now, if we come to the Jonesboro Visitor Center to see this exhibit, what are we going to see? You have big panels. Is it excerpts from writing? Is it photographs? What are we going to see while we're in the visitor center? Yes, absolutely. So the exhibit is eight large panels that are um, in the center of the museum. It is not um, an object curated exhibit. So it is mostly textual, but within the panels, you are going to see photographs. So for instance, one of the uh, myths that we tackle is the myth of lack of diversity, right? What we call the whitewashing of Appalachia. And essentially by focusing on, you know, this uh, predominant Scots-Irish heritage, folks ignore indigenous peoples, which have always been here, uh, Black Americans, which have been here from Appalachia's beginning, as well as other immigrant groups who very much affected us, like Germans and Swedes, um, Italians, and even Eastern Europeans who came with the coal mining companies. So um, you're going to see photographs, though, historic photographs from 100, 150 years ago of those individuals who were here. Um, you're also going to have excerpts from newspapers and from letters uh, that describe Appalachia 
in the words of the day, either from the folks who lived here or from outsiders characterizing the area. All right, we've got to go to another one. So we've talked about illiteracy. <laughs> You've talked about lack of diversity. What's another of their, the top hits? Oh, yeah, that's the thing is each of the myths, I think, is so salient. And there's not, they're all so relevant, I think, to us living in Appalachia today because we have experience with most of them. So um, I would say that another predominant one is um, isolated, isolation. We hear a lot about that. The Appalachian Regional Commission, when it emerged in the mid-20th century, and is still operational today, um, cites that as one of the main hindrances to the region. And, and you'll hear that commonly when folks talk about, you know, what's wrong with Appalachia, right? And it's, oh, well, it's isolated. But if you look at the historical evidence, that's not necessarily the case. We had massive infrastructure, right? Starting from Daniel Boone, the Wilderness Road, uh, we see foot traffic and settlement patterns that infiltrate the interior of Appalachia in the hundreds of thousands, you know, very early on. Um, I think by the late 1700s, a newspaper in Kentucky was complaining that Appalachia was already starting to fill up. <laughs> and so then later, too, we see connectivity with railroads. I mean, the Tweetsie Railroad, for instance, uh, the narrow gauge traversed mountainous terrain to connect hubs to really rural areas in Western North Carolina for commerce, right? We have passenger excursions where people would take the trains out to different areas throughout Appalachia for a day or an overnight experience. Um, and then we also have, obviously, connectivity through newspapers and other things that, you know, we have massive participation, for instance, in um, military conflicts. And so this myth that we are geographically and thus culturally isolated, I think has been referred to a lot, but it's not necessarily true. All right, here's another one. Where does this one go in? This is not one of your eight that I know of because I'm just now learning what they are. But what about the hillbilly guy with his jug of moonshine mm -hmm. and sitting around under the tree, lazy, doesn't want to work, fishing, the Snuffy Smith kind of thing, which I think is still in the comics was the last time I looked. Where does yes. that fit on your list, Dr. Megan Toole? <laughs> it is there. It is there. And it actually overlaps with two myths that we tackle. One is, um, you know, we talk about dependency. We talk about the idea of Appalachians being dependent on, you know, um, government programs, for instance, or assistance, um, which interacts with the idea of not being willing to work. Uh, so lazy, you know, um, or listless. And what people don't realize about that is that you have to understand the histories of economic and environmental exploitation that really changed the way the Appalachians lived. And it changed their ability to provide for themselves and their families. So um, we talk about in the exhibit, the use of common natural areas for foraging, for farming, for livestock, and with the creation of private areas, what happened, private ownership of land, what you get is this communal use of Appalachian space. Well, now you don't have access to it anymore. And that's either through private ownership um, or through even uh, natural preservation efforts, you know, conservation efforts, which tried to create state and national 
um, spaces, protected spaces, had a big impact. We focus in the exhibit on um, to the coal and oil industries and timber industries and how um, folks were not properly compensated in many ways for their land or how, um, you know, in Appalachia during the 1800s in particular, and especially escalating in the 1900s, um, absentee ownership was huge. You know, the majority of landholders in many areas didn't live here or they were corporate interest, you know? And so you go from folks who are more self-sufficient to now wage earners. And that's, you know, we tackle that with the company, towns, et cetera. So we try to explain how that dependency and that lack of opportunity, economic opportunity is connected to larger processes. It's not an individual or a moral failing. It's a historical effect. So you may have land and some rich company comes in and buys your land and then starts using taking out the minerals or the coal or the taking off the trees or whatever. And the only thing you can do is work for the company. Many times the land was the only asset, financial asset that a lot of people had. And as their ability to kind of tap into communal resources lessened, their ability to make do with just their land became harder and harder. And so, yes, so you would sell your land, maybe not always at market value or the appropriate amounts. Land ownership was really tough here, too, because it's really messy in some ways. Um, but corporations and even politicians who ended up siding a lot of the times with corporations, right? Would no, Megan, no. <laughs> I know. Shocking. See, we that's the thing, Teresa. We tackle it all in the exhibit because we can, because that's what happens. And that's the luxury, I think, of looking at things historically is that we can see how it all unfolded. So that's one of the, the myths we tackle is how kind of politics and economics conspire to create a situation in which Appalachians weren't able to survive in ways that they had previously. My guest today is Dr. Megan Toole. She's a programming coordinator right now at the Jonesboro Visitor Center and has curated and researched the exhibit that is there throughout most of this coming year, Eight Myths About Appalachia. And Megan, the last question that I had asked you as I gave you the scenario, the Snuffy Smith hillbilly uh, mm -hmm. example and said, what myth is that? You said it's part of a couple and one you named was dependency. What else goes into that myth? This, I would say that there's two others that it overlaps with. One is the idea that we're not innovative. We don't create. And we are a society of makers here in Appalachia. The cabin, the law cabin, an iconic piece of Appalachian history is an invention, a European invention. The Swiss and other cultures were known for cabin making. The banjo, another iconic piece of our material heritage, is based on an, an African, West African instrument. We adapt and innovate and create in really amazing ways. And so this idea that we're backwards, I think, is it overlaps with the myth that you mentioned, Teresa. And another that we're backwards, period, right? This idea that we're a backward society, we're backward thinking people. But especially when it comes to things like labor and unionization of labor or even civil rights, we have long histories of advocacy, civic engagement, um, interaction with, you know, um, progressive movements. And so I think in many ways, folks forget or just don't know that we have been forward thinking in many ways for a long time. 
I love that expression backward because I knew people, I have known people who use that expression even about themselves. Well, I'm just kind of backward or she's kind of backward, which I assume is an Appalachian term. And it kind of just means shy. I think it, I think that it has a variety of connotations. I think some people do refer to it as that the context that we see it used more so with in terms of outside characterizations is that we're not willing to move forward with the times. We're stuck in our ways. We're old fashioned. And that's what we wanted to kind of disprove in some ways. You know, we have wonderful histories of women's suffrage efforts, you know, here in the Tri-Cities in Northeast Tennessee. We've got great labor um, initiatives, including with minorities, you know, throughout Southwest Virginia and West Virginia. You know, we really we had great civil rights education happen in Tennessee as well and in northern Georgia. So our goal, I think, was just to say, you know, folks aren't sitting on a tree stump with a corncob pipe, you know, going, you know, uh, decrying the changing of time. They're participating in the changes that are happening throughout our history. You know, Megan Toole, this topic of the myths of Appalachians seems to be hot right now. I'm wondering if you are aware of or maybe have read Barbara Kingsolver's new book, Demon Copperhead. I am familiar with it. I'm working on another book of hers right now, um, actually about local foodways. And I have heard nothing but amazing things about Demon Copperhead. I'm very excited to read it. Oh, you are going to just love it. It is going to be right down your alley because Barbara Kingsolver has a thing about Appalachian culture and the representation of Appalachian culture. And so it is what you're talking about and what is on display at your exhibit is infused throughout this book. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've got to ask you about another one. Uh, what about Hillbilly Elegy? J.D. <laughs> J.D. Uh, yes. Vance. Vance. Yeah, Vance. Vance. You know, this exhibit isn't a direct response to Vance. Um, I feel like other folks in more academic circles have done an excellent job in providing a counter narrative um, to his work, which, you know, definitely brought up Appalachia in the national conversation and the national consciousness in the best way as a very individual take. I think, though, that seeing Vance's work in literature, seeing the depictions in film and, um, you know, TV that's happened as a result of that or in combination with that, I think has left an open space where this exhibit steps up and fills, which is instead of the imagined or the individual experience, what is the collective history? And that's what we're, that's what we are trying to do in terms of filling in the gaps and answering some of those questions. So transcending, you know, maybe his experience, which um, I don't think is necessarily representative for all, but without discrediting the fact that there are many types of Appalachians who live many different types of lives. And that's one of the things that makes it difficult to define us and also really beautiful, beautiful thing about our region. Well, J.D. Vance's book, Hillbilly Elegy, got so much attention and a lot of people, as you alluded to, uh, were very critical of his presentation of Appalachia. And then there's another book. And if you haven't met this man, you got to you got to drag him down to this exhibit. Frank Kilgore, we interviewed him on this show. He wrote a book. J.D. Vance is a fake hillbilly and <laughs> went on a rant about J.D. Vance's book. Yeah, yeah, it's common. So um, I'm wondering, are you Appalachian? I am from uh, the Bluegrass area of Kentucky, like Barbara King Solver. I'm a Kentuckian. I'm very proud of that. 
Um, my family is from East Tennessee. Um, my grandfather grew up in the coal camps and uh, coal towns of Hazard, Happy, Leatherwood. So I have a, a connection to Appalachia and I live here now and I'm very happy to be here. I'm cautious about claiming a, a complete Appalachian identity, but I'd like to say I'm Appalachian adjacent. <laughs> All right. And so here you go. When you say you're Appalachian adjacent and you have roots to Appalachia, what does that mean to you? You know, I've thought about this a lot, Teresa, and I love this question. So I appreciate you asking it because it means so many different things to different people. The common traits that I see, I think, in Appalachians and then I feel in myself, storytelling, which is a big part of being a historian. That's also a family trait that comes from my grandfather's family and I think defines Appalachian a lot of ways. And we got that from, you know, Native American traditions, European immigrant traditions. We are a storytelling people. So I, I feel like that is something it means to me, you know, to um, keep those memories in that form and to share. And even just the way you speak about things, it, it's always a story, right? So uh, I love that. And then I also think that there is a connectivity that Appalachians have to the land and to nature. And that's always been really complicated, again, because of some of those histories that I mentioned. But it's been there, right? We're very connected to our geography. And so that feels very personal for me as well. There, Those are kind of two predominant things that I see across all types of Appalachians, whether they live in urban settings, whether they are younger or older. You know, those are two things that really stick out for me and that I identify with. You know, sometimes I just feel like all of this, all of these distinctions, they're just all wrong because mm -hmm. we're all just people. But one of the distinctive things about the region is the accent. <laughs> Have you got anything about that in your exhibit? There is so much. Um, we, we didn't really tackle the accent because... We started to, and you can honestly do an entire exhibit just on the linguistics alone and on the accent alone. You know, there's conversation about it being kind of this linguistic island preserved in time of, you know, Shakespearean speech. There's um, distinctions between, you know, mountain accents and Southern accents and then Appalachian accent. So that is definitely something that we want to get into, but it's going to definitely take some original research, some dedicated time and intentionality. Um, there's usually Appalachians have a little bit of a twang. Um, Southerners would say they do too, you know, and so I think trying to tease out without being reductionist, right, without oversimplifying, that's the line that we walk with our historical interpretation. So I'd love to do more with that. Um, I've got to, <laughs> I've got to be a little bit more prepared before trying to tackle it. Yeah. And also because it's a sensitive issue. It's real touchy. People are touchy about the accent thing. And I certainly grew up, my speech has changed a lot. I went to graduate school in North Carolina. And every time I opened my mouth, they whacked me over the head to knock that accent out of me. If you notice, I said North Carolina, not North Mine, Carolina, yes. which I would have said <laughs> back then. And so people tend to judge you based on on your accent. So yeah, maybe that's the next one you got to work on, uh, Dr. T. Actually, anti-Appalachian discrimination in the exhibit, Ohio was the first state to pass a law that basically prohibited discriminating against people of Appalachian descent. And part of the issue was that 
they would take, they called it the hillbilly highway, but we had mass out migration due to economic hardship and folks went to the factories. They went to Detroit and Chicago and Cleveland and they would work in factories and they would be in these Appalachian communities, right? These enclaves, um, but their appearance, their speech, their food ways, uh, their communication styles, a lot of that was really off-putting and became made fun of and discriminated against. And so the accent is very touchy. I actually went to school in Indiana originally um, for my undergrad and my advisors, most of them had been to Yale or to Princeton, you know, my professors, and we had a communication issue. We definitely did. Um, the student body there was largely from Chicago. I think I was one of very few people to actually come up from, you know, the South and cross the river to go. And so I would agree. I think that the accent is personal. Talking slow does not mean that you're stupid, <laughs> uh, which, again, is kind of part of that backwards thing. But we try to talk about the perception of how Appalachians present themselves and some of the challenges that they've had. But, yeah, I think the next exhibit should probably be on the accent. Well, and again, it's like none of these things ring true to me. None of the descriptions of, of, of you know, the life that I lived, except for the accent thing. But then I guess when you dig down deeper, it's like any culture that the food's a little different, the music's a little different, the dress is a little bit of a little bit of different, and people see somebody different, and there's got to be something wrong with them. Teresa, you know, a lot of that is what they've been because of the Beverly Hillbillies, because of the cartoons and newspapers. You know, that's all preconditioning in a lot of ways, and so it's just like anything else. When you meet somebody, it, it dismantles some of that, but um, you know, the pandemic has made it hard too. Folks have been staying put. So I think that exposure therapy is going to be really important moving forward as we reconcile, you know, some of these stereotypes. How long has your exhibit been open? Just a couple of weeks. It is brand new for the most part. Yeah, we're really excited. It's going to be on display until summer of 2023, at which point we hope that it might travel. But I'd highly recommend if folks are in the area or interested that they come and take a look while it's still available. Is it too early to get a sense of reactions from people who are tourists traveling through? Surprise. Uh, I do think surprise. If you take the time, it, it is text heavy, which I think, you know, if you're interested and you actually commit to reading through what we present, because we try to provide as much information as we can in a short space, you know, small space. I see a lot of eyebrows. I see a lot of, hmm, ah, you know, or calling over to somebody and kind of giving them the fun facts. So for visitors, I think it's been illuminating. For local residents, it's been a lot of thankfulness and a lot of appreciation and kind of a lot of, well, we already knew that, which is great. I'm glad that that gets represented too. So it it suits a lot of different purposes. Well, let's wrap up by having you just go over the facts. What is the exhibit? Where is it? When do people see it? How do they get in touch? All those kind of things. If you want to learn more about the exhibit, you can visit our website, the Heritage Alliance website at heritageall.org. Um, you can also visit the exhibit, which is eight myths about Appalachia in person at the Jonesboro and Washington County History Museum located in the Jonesboro Visitor Center. The center is open, I believe, from 9 to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday as well as some weekend hours. I would visit their website or Facebook for more information. The exhibit will be available now until summer of 2023. And if you have questions, comments, reactions, uh, suggestions for what we should look at next, I hope that folks will feel free to get in touch. Dr. Megan Toole from speaking to us from the Jonesboro Visitor Center. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Teresa. 
a great pleasure and also a great pleasure to have listeners tuned in to WEHC and WISE-FM from WISE and throughout Southwest Virginia, throughout the Appalachian area here. And if you want to hear this conversation again, if you missed it, if you want to hear others, go to WEHCFM.com, click on the archives and podcast site, and you'll have all the interviews you can stand. Once again, thanks to Dr. Megan Toole, and thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.